0: Hello, it's Evans Mirages, the Harry T. Wilkes Artistic Director for Cincinnati Opera. And on this podcast, my guest is the noted designer, Vita Tsikun. Starting life in Odessa, in what was then still the Soviet Union, moving on to Israel for formative years, Vita has designed for legitimate theater, for opera, for film, and has had inspiration from every corner of the globe, inspiring her great work on the stage and on the screen. And we'll also get a chance to talk to her about what it's like to work with Lady Gaga. Vita, you have one of the most near-ideal names for a theatrical (laughs) designer, at once easily pronounceable and completely exotic. Where does it come from?
1: So the meaning of the name means life. And uh, in Italian, but um, I'm Ukrainian, Soviet Ukrainian. uh, But my parents uh, tried to conceive me for quite a long time. And when they finally succeeded, they gave me a full name that is Victoria, meaning victory, and the short name uh, Vita, which means life. So um, that's where it comes from.
0: So were you actually born in Ukraine and then left and went to Israel eventually, right? Or at least studied in Israel?
1: Yes. So I was born and raised in USSR. Uh, which is now Ukraine. And I say USSR because we left uh, as political refugees a year before Soviet Union collapsed. Mm. So when people ask me where I'm from, I always ask them if they have a minute so that I can really explain. <laughs> um, because, um, you know, I, I'm actually from Soviet Union not from Mm -hmm. Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine was Ukraine before Soviet Union and became again Ukraine in 1991. Um, So I'm actually from Soviet Union, an area which is now called Ukraine, from Odessa, a legendary uh, city on the Black Sea.
0: Oh, and a cradle of so many great musicians, particularly violinists. For some reason, in the history of great classical music violin playing, Odessa is like the most fertile ground. It's sort of the green belt for violinists as well. A lot of back.
1: musicians. Absolutely. Also a lot of writers, a lot of legendary writers wrote there. Um, it was actually an incredible city, which is a, a, a largest seaport in that area. And so it was extremely international. And even in the times of Soviet Union, you know, there would be ships uh, coming there from overseas. And it was the largest black market, I think, you know, of goods <laughs> that you could find there. And it was a very, very colorful city with people of many, many nationalities and ethnicities and languages spoken. So it was probably as cosmopolitan as you could get in Soviet Union. Which it's is
0: really yeah. It's it's really interesting because people talk that way about Shanghai during mm. the even the most difficult times of the of the height of Chinese communism. Of course it's still a communist country, but Shanghai had a very similar sort of freewheeling port city no-holds-barred kind of uh, economy that had a, a considerable black market. So yep. is the is the family historically Ukrainian, or do they, do they come from another part of what used to be the Soviet Union or the, the Russian world?
1: You know, as far back as we were able to trace it, we have been in Ukraine. Uh, mm-hmm. Now my family is Jewish, which is why we emigrated to Israel as political refugees in 1990. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... Uh, Probably, um, you know, thousands of years ago, we can go back to the Middle East, but you know, we're mm-hmm. not able to trace that far. As far as, as far as we were able to trace, we were from Ukraine. Yeah,
0: we had a fascinating conversation in this series with a wonderful, gifted conductor, by the name of Daniela Candelari. Oh, yeah, who has a very similar story to tell in that. Um, born in, uh, well, what is now uh, Slovenia, Mm -hmm. but of course was also in Zagreb and had one of these peripatetic youthful existences until she eventually wound up in the United States. Love brought her here and has kept her here. But um, like her, your, your upbringing and your education has been multicultural from the very beginning it seems like um so at what age did you wind up in israel and at what age in your your as it were intellectual development did you start studying in israel
1: so i arrived at israel when i was 12 years old um, but by that time, I already had a very, very developed education in Soviet Union. Um, I come from a family of intellectuals, uh, with my dad being an artist. My mom was a musician and, um, my dad, uh, was a head of, um, an art school in Odessa, which um, combined a comprehensive approach to child upbringing that uh, he developed, and it was called uh, Aesthetic Education, uh, which uh, focused on developing children's um, abilities through fine arts, theater, and literature. And so since I was little, I studied in his school um, and I was also trained as a ballerina since a very young age of six um, at a school that was adjacent to the opera and ballet theater in Odessa, because that's where my mom and my grandpa, grandmother um, worked as a accompanist to the ballet corps there. And so, so I, was, yeah, I was all uh, educated uh, since a very, very young age with very little time off since I can remember wow. myself.
0: It sounds like you were, as they used to say, born in a trunk. Yeah, the theater <laughs> has been part of your life, whether it's ballet or the aesthetics of, of design of some sort from mm-hmm. as long as you can remember. Yeah. Did, so uh, not unlike some parents who are creative people, your folks did not discourage your creativity. They actually encouraged it
1: yeah absolutely and actually my sister is an artist as well she's my older sister she's an incredible painter and designer and illustrator and uh my teenage rebellion uh as a younger uh one in the family was not to be an artist and (laughs) when i when i uh approached my 10th grade uh, in Israel. Um, it's kind of a system that is akin to a college a little bit. For 10th and 11th and 12th grade in Israel, you need to choose your specialization. Uh, what do you want mm. to study? Um, it's not kind of general education, only less until the, the ninth grade. And so uh, my dad encouraged me to go to a graphic design high school where my sister went so that I can continue studying fine arts there and I said no you know there are too many artists in the family I'm not going to do that and so I decided to go specialize in languages and sociology and economics and I studied that for three years.
0: But but art eventually pulled you back into its clutches how did that yep. happen?
1: <laughs> um, you know I just think it was inescapable at a certain point because just because it was it was such a part of me and everything I knew, um, that it just pulled me back into the fold and um, almost, despite my will, so to speak, you know, I it's it's a crazy st- two crazy stories actually. One is that I continued dancing in Israel, uh, classical ballet, actually, after we emigrated, and uh, in Israel I started studying in the branch of the British Royal Academy of Ballet, and at that point I was to be a ballerina completely you know, that's all I knew how to do. I studied very, very intensely. And then um, when I was about to apply to a special high school uh, for dance uh, in Tel Aviv, it was an elite high school where all the best dancers train. Uh, when I was training for my entry exam into that high school, I had a really terrible dance accident. And mm. I uh, tore a ligament in my leg when I jumped into a split. And um, that injury (laughs) prevented me from dancing um, from then on out and uh, it was a big shock to my system of course and so that's when I realized that I'm just going to go study languages and economics and uh, you know sociology just tied with the arts and never look back Uh, but I started missing it you know I started really really missing it and I was very miserable not being on stage and not being connected to creativity. Um, and so I was quite depressed. And so my parents uh, found some sort of um, youth theater group for Russian expats that was led <laughs> by a legendary um, uh, St. Petersburg director, Igor Mushkatin was his name. Um, And he uh, created a theater in Jaffa, uh, close to Tel Aviv, that was specifically targeted for Russian-speaking teenagers. And Hmm. um, my parents saw that I'm so miserable after not being able to dance and I couldn't find my place in the world. They suggested I go there. And I went there and um, I rediscovered an amazing group of teenagers who are passionate about poetry and acting and performance and design and um, just a brilliant mind of that director. And uh, that made me fall in love with the stage again and kind of come back to it from a different angle. I started acting. Uh, Very soon, I realized that I'm a much better dancer than actor. (laughs) But then, you know, because it was a youth theater, then everybody did everything. And so I started doing some designing and uh, designing some costumes, designing some sets, and really loved it. And, you know, the thing is, my dad, when, when he was in his thirties and forties he was a stage designer as well at that time and Mm. uh so it was just so familiar you know i spent so much of my childhood in his studio among set models and sketches and so it was like a very familiar world to come to and i think that just really lifted me from depression um after the dance injury and i've been kind of tied to that world ever since
0: uh, when someone meets you face to face, and I just uh, a penny dropped to me, one of the first things I noticed when I first met you, and I said to myself, she moves like a dancer. There oh, really? is something about if someone has been a dancer for the rest of their life, man or woman, they move with a kind of purposeful grace, um they don't take an ungainly step even if it's you know around an awkward corner and so clearly the the sense of the the, the line that runs through the center of your body and the way you hold yourself stays with you long after you stopped dancing it sounds like that sort of posture yeah. and a way of approaching the world physically knowing the space that you occupy
1: yeah absolutely especially since I trained you know it was from the age of 16 uh, 6 to 16 so
0: very long. It's, it's, yeah, it's part of your DNA. Yeah. D- tell us a little bit about, if you wouldn't mind casting your mind back to some of your early memories of actually writing or drawing or sketching, how would you describe um, the way in which you sketch? Are you someone who does things very, very quickly and very sort of uh, almost abstractly and then refine and refine and refine? Are you someone who takes the pen or pencil in hand and is very specific from the very beginning. How, does, how do the images, as it were, evolve on paper under your hand?
1: You know, that's a, that's an interesting question, and it has been evolving as I've been evolving. The thing is, my relationship to drawing in particular is quite complicated because I have my father, who is an exceptional painter and illustrator, and my sister, older sister, who is an exceptional painter and illustrator, um, both as big role models for me, and their work is that. It's the, the product, right? It's the illustration. And they're so incredible at it that I haven't incredibly high standards of that. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm definitely not as good of a drawer as they are Um, because also what I do is, you know, is on the way to telling a story because what the audience sees on stage or on film is not my sketches. Right. That's, um, Mm -hmm. It's something else. And so my sketches are just a way for me to brainstorm. But because I I grew up seeing my dad and my sister draw so beautifully, every time that I start drawing, I have this expectation that it should be glorious. And then it's not typically. And so I uh, work out most of my designs in my head. Mm -hmm. Uh, I love to go for very, very long walks and think through everything or just sit with my eyes closed and imagine everything or just stare at the window and imagine everything. And only when I see it very clearly in my mind's eye, I will draw it once typically. Um, and, and, and by that time, I already know what it's going to look like. And then, and then I will draw it. And, you know, of course, there are some modifications here and there. Um, but typically I don't start touching pen to paper until I've worked out everything in my mind prior to that, just because it's too stressful. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Could you take us through the journey because I think many people who will be listening to this podcast will be familiar with work you've done for Cincinnati Opera in Fellow Travelers a beautiful malleable functional magical set that was if you look at it in its physical properties is rather simple it's a it's a it's a series of movable um almost boxes that have many sides, that during the course of some, I don't know, 20 scene changes, I, I've lost count now. I oh, tried to, yes. to go back <laughs> beforehand and say, how many, how many scene changes are there in fellow travelers? But become so many different things. How did that particular design evolve in your mind and in the mind of Kevin Newberry, your colleague director?
1: You know, everything starts from the big idea everything has to start from dramaturgy and everything has to start from a response to music. That's the very, very beginning. Anytime I design an opera, uh, I always start by listening to the music first, only to the music without reading any words. And I write down my first emotional response to the music. Typically, Mm. I try to keep it to a sentence, the maximum maybe two sentences, but just so that it's very, very concise. Then I read the libretto separately And then I kind of jot down my responses to the libretto, and then I combine them together and do the same. And throughout the design process, I really try to go back and refer to these first emotions, often, to make sure that I stay true to my own artistic interpretation of the piece. Um, So that's true just in every opera that I design. It was the same uh, with with fellow travelers. And uh, once I did that work and I met with Kevin, we started thinking, uh, what is the most important element in this show that we want to have the audience feel? And we realized that we needed to make the audience feel that everybody were watched all the time no matter Mm -hmm. where they were, no matter what location it was, whether it was a party or it was someone's bedroom or if it was someone's kitchen. We had to uh, create an uncomfortable space where people felt threatened, or even if they didn't know it, they were threatened. And so we wanted the audience to know, even if the characters didn't know. And that's how I've arrived at this design idea that... All these locations uh, will be represented in these rolling pieces of reality that will be two-sided. On one side, it will be a representation of a location, be it a kitchen or a bedroom or a living room or an office. But on the other side, uh, we will always have these identical uh, file cabinets where... Mm -hmm workers and spies and government workers would keep files on everybody who they were watching. And in the scenic transitions, the audience was able to see that other side um, of each of those units. And so even if the characters themselves in some of the scenes didn't know that on the other side of their bedroom is a row of filing cabinets where all of this information is filed on them, the audience knew that. And so that was the main driving visual concept for the show.
0: It shows me, in retrospect that uh, th- of course there are no accidents, and nothing is partic- there are serendipitous things where you're in the middle of a design process and something comes to your mind or to your eye that makes a, a set richer for the, for the serendipity or the late arrival of an idea. But it also says to me that um, a set itself,, um, unless it's a simple backdrop, um, can be a character in the opera as well. And this set actually became, as you said, the the overarching sense of uh, living in a hostile environment where you are not safe. Um, yeah. And even, even the intimacy of your bedroom on the other side of the wall, someone is listening, which I yeah. find a, a fascinating, holistic concept. It's not just making a location visible for an audience to... Ground themselves in some sort of reality, but it's also a commentary on the action as well. Yeah, absolutely. Is that that something that um, can can you describe maybe a different kind of aesthetic under which you've operated for a different production that might be very different from what you had what you did with Kevin Newberry and for us? I mean,
1: well, you know, I think. I think a design is always psychological. I think that the terminology of set design and costume design is actually quite antiquated. And I've been uh, quite uncomfortable for quite some time using these words because I think Mm -hmm. that what we do is actually character design and environment design. Um, Because sets and costumes come from the olden times when they were very decorative. And so the idea was more like of a carnival, something representational. You wanted to just put some decorative drops as you said, you know, maybe to just decorate a scene. But I think that as the pieces that have been written, uh, theater and opera, have became more psychological and complicated, uh, there became a need to evolve where people are and what they wear from costumes and sets to environments and characters, you know? So when I design costumes, I never think of them as costumes. I always try to get to the core of what is the psychology of that character. And if I was that character in that particular time and in that particular situation, what would I wear? Um, even if the production is abstract, even if it's stylized, there is always a context in which these characters fit. Um, you know, And so it's never really decorative.
0: Is this aesthetic something you apply both to spoken theater as well as to opera? Do the two art forms have sometimes slightly different needs in terms of the way that you create this environment?
1: Yes, I think that opera by virtue of using music as its main driving force can be much more abstract. Uh, because the fact that singers sing, that they don't speak, right. The fact that some people come on stage and they sing, that's already not what we perceive as regular reality. So we're already in a heightened reality because people sing on stage. Um, so that allows for a certain abstraction and then just the music, you know, um, abstract by nature, allows for usage of much more visual metaphor, I think, and symbolism than um, traditional spoken theater could allow. Not to say that theatrical productions can't be um, more abstract in their design, but I think that they lend themselves to realism much more because they're much more effective in reenacting realistic situations.
0: Taking it one step further, you have designed a production of a song cycle, Franz Schubert's Winterreise, if I remember correctly, yeah. and, and not just a, not just for any singer, but for David Adam Moore, who also happens to be your partner in life. What is what does a song cycle uh, require? This particular production of the this beautiful, masterful late work of Franz Schubert, the Winter's Journey. This is a a, a typical romantic story of a soul that is in torment, that is looking for the meaning of life, and the it, it ends. It begins in a bleak set setting, and ends even more bleakly with the protagonist talking about the hurdy gurdy player, mm-hmm. uh, desolate, and this kind of drone. And the journey is across a very, very bleak landscape. How did you conceive and execute this particular art form? and also the way in which you did this particular piece?
1: Well, you know, it's really interesting that you ask about it because we are currently in pre-production for a film version of Vinteraise for Austin Opera. Um, What happened is that we were supposed to do this production uh, right before the pandemic hit. and um i was in the middle of a production in minneapolis we were about to open the world premiere of edward (laughs) tulane yes and david was in hungary he was singing with the hungarian state opera and the production of dead man walking and he was about to open it and so we were both supposed to fly to austin to do our production of winterizer right after those engagements and that's when the lockdown happened and Mm -hmm. so um Annie Barich, uh, the head of Austin Opera, reached out to us and said that, you know, uh, rather than canceling the project, I would be interesting to see if you would be open to morphing it into a movie. Wow. And we were fascinated and elated by that. And actually, we're about to drive down to Austin in about two and a half weeks to actually shoot the film. And uh, when I said that David was warming up Right before we started recording this He was uh, singing through In preparation for that film Recording So we're in the midst of this project right now And uh, it's a project That has uh, been part of our lives For the past decade actually Uh, Austin Opera is a six opera company To present it And um, the way we see it Is uh, a narrative Of a hurdy-gurdy man himself who looks at his life and remembers his life and the Mm. entire song cycle is the memory of the hurdy-gurdy man reenacting Mm. his life through his song and so what we did is that we created um, video for each of the 24 songs and David when he performs on stage he's actually projected on as well as I said, and we had multiple versions of the scenic design that ranged from shards of k- kind of ice and uh, to um, a more uh, organic shape that we're working with right now. It's a piece of crumpled paper as if a poet that was writing his poems and was frustrated with them and tore the piece of paper out of his journal and crumpled it up and threw it. And so our set is actually a large sculpture made of paper. So to speak, it's Tyvek, but it's like a big piece of paper. And David is, on it telling the story and then we created a custom video shoot in the salt, salt flats in utah uh, where uh, david is costumed and made up as his older self and he, and he's playing the hurdy-gurdy in the salt flats um, and we shot him there um, himself being an old man and so at the end of the song cycle he actually meets himself his younger self meets his older self
0: so in in some way, you are not just adapting work that you have done before, but you are using the work that you have done before as a springboard for a new medium. And it leads me to ask you, we've talked a little bit about the difference requirements between uh, spoken theater and opera, the different requirements and opportunities that moving from something you have done in one medium to another medium. What are some of the aesthetic things that you take into consideration when taking your work and translating it into film? And it's not Um, just setting up a camera and filming a performance.
1: Of course, of course. I think that medium is tremendously important. Um, Of course, that's nothing new. Uh, But uh, from a visual standpoint, I think the biggest difference between designing for film and for opera, for example, is how close can you see Uh, Because when you design for an opera, you have to design for distance because oftentimes, depending on the size of the opera house, your audience is very, very far away. Mm -hmm. And while it's important to pay attention to details for the sake of your performers, because I think it's tremendously important that the performer who's in an environment, who wears uh, clothing on stage, that they feel... um, the details and that enhances their performance but ultimately you have to work with a really large brush so to speak when you design for opera because especially people who sit in the balcony for example they will never see the small details Um, and if you don't think on a large scale uh, you will not make a an effective visual impression and won't drive the story forward visually in opera in film you can get tremendous close-ups And you can change your point of view, whereas in an opera, um, we're locked behind the fourth wall, typically in a proscenium scenario where everything happens on stage and the audience is on the other side of the fourth wall looking straight on and their point of view is locked, they can't move. In the film, it's quite different because you can change your point of view, you can see the world from the point of view of the protagonist, you can see the protagonist over the shoulder, you can get closer to them, you can get wide shots. So, you know, the visual vocabulary uh, is just very different. And I think the main difference between stage and film is points of view and ability to get very close.
0: So you will be working with David to uh, to not simply recreate Vinterizer, but newly create using the work you've done before as simply a jumping off point for yes. this new medium.
1: Yes. And And, I have to say that um, David, uh, so David and I have an art collective, a New York-based art collective called Glimmer. And uh, David is also a multimedia visual artist and a video designer and composer himself, cinematographer. And so David is the one who actually created all the videos for um, Wintreise. And uh, we collaborated on some of them, of course, but he has been the one who um, has been designing the video projections and the video content for the Song Cycle. And uh, we're actually going to use a lot of the uh, video that we already created for the stage production in uh, this film. But we're also going to film David on the set in Austin, but just film him very differently on that set.
0: How fun. Well, and your work in film, as I recall from reading your biographical sketch, includes working with a very famous contemporary singer. What's it like to work with Lady Gaga? (laughs)
1: um it's great i mean she's one of the hardest working human beings i've ever met um and uh incredible work ethic uh incredible imagination incredible will um and it's just very inspiring you know it was very hard work um the timetables on Events like these, you know, I was the art director on her ABC Thanksgiving special. It was a 90-minute uh, television show. Um, and then I also designed for the VMA uh, Awards and the Bambi Awards, uh, where she performed on stage. The timeline on those is so incredibly quick. Hmm. Um I would say no six week
0: rehearsal period, no leisurely design conferences Mm -mm. over a series of months. You show up and it has to be ready in a couple of weeks, right?
1: Yes. Yes. It's, (laughs) it's unbelievably fast. And so it's extremely high stress, very quick. Um, but you know, I've worked in film before in other capacities and so I'm very, I'm very used to the schedule as well, but, um, but it's, it's helpful when the person you design for is very decisive, I guess that's what I'm saying. Um, Mm -hmm. In in, in such a fast-paced environment, it's very important that you get feedback quickly and that it's clear and that you're on the same page. Um, But it was great fun, yeah.
0: One of the things I think that people remark so much about Lady Gaga, when they actually take the trouble to see beyond the spectacular nature of what she does, is exactly what you've said: what a thoroughly um, intellectual and brilliant person is operating, and that she happens to be a singer. It's that's that's her form of expression, but that the 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 mind that propels the this imaginative approach to entertainment. Uh, is extraordinary. Um, Do you remember any one particular moment in the course of your work for her that stands out as, yeah, that's why she who is who she is? It's, uh, It's clear.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, when we were recording the Thanksgiving special, uh, we had to record it over a, a weekend and, and it's a 90 minute show that we had to record over the weekend. So it was grueling, grueling days preparing for it. And so by the time the shooting already started, we were so exhausted. Um, but, you know, then we had these long shoot days ahead of us and she uh, she sang live and every take and danced a hundred percent on every take. And I remember a certain point, I think it was already like 10 o'clock at night. And we literally were just like laying down on the floor, just exhausted. And she kept saying, no, one more take, one more take. And she would sing live out every time. Um, it's a and, lesson. And she to just any, pushed us all to excellence.
0: <laughs> it's a lesson to any young opera singer who needs to have a little bit of a rest after a three-hour rehearsal.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, you know, to to be fair, she sang with a microphone. Yeah, okay. true. So yeah, so um, so I guess she didn't have to project as much as opera singers do, but but still, you know, just just the drive for excellence was yeah. extremely inspiring. Absolutely,
0: work et- work ethic among the best people that we encounter is always extraordinary I've, i have have uh, you know seen two or three generations of performers in in several mediums and the best ones are never lazy the best ones work like demons uh, yeah. i remember meeting vladimir horowitz when he was over 70 for the very first time and he still practiced four hours a day mm. just because that's that's what you do to stay at the top of your profession quite yeah. extraordinary so um If you would, um, would you describe sort of a typical day, you have a project before you, let's say a typical day when you're encountering and starting to work on, well, let the cat out of the bag, it's been announced, but you are also the designer for the 2021 Cincinnati Opera production of Fellow Travelers. What might a typical day of the beginning of work on a fellow, uh, not fellow Travelers? sorry, that you are the designer for our 2021 presentation of Castor and Patience, What would a typical day of working on Castor and Patience be like? Is it the one thing you work on during a day? Are there four or five things that your pen and your mind touch in a day of design work?
1: So definitely multiple different things a day. Um, the way uh, a designer schedule typically works is that by nature of how our projects are staggered uh, and how long they last, it, especially if we design for opera, uh, we have multiple projects going on and they're all in different phases of production. So one of the main skills that we need to develop as designers is scheduling. It's very yeah, boring, sure. but also very important. And so at, on, on any given day, I would typically have um, one production that I'm just starting to design. So let's say it's Castor and Patience. And so I would listen to the music. I would do the analysis of the libretto There might be another production that I've been engaged to design that I've already done that first phase and now I'm in the research phase. So maybe I will be researching something for another production. Um, Then another production I might be in the design phase for. So I've already listened and responded and researched. And so for some production, I would be in the design phase, meaning that I would be brainstorming, sketching, meeting with directors, designers, uh, fellow designers, and developing these ideas. Um, And then for another production, I could be in the phase of uh, meeting with the scenic shops or the costume shops. So once the designs have been approved by the director and the rest of the creative team and most importantly, the opera company, um, then the designs go into production. So I need to oversee that production. And then I might be in rehearsal for some other production. Um, and so all of this can happen simultaneously on a very full day uh, or less simultaneously on a lighter day.
0: like <laughs> <laughs> that. And I'm also, re- like that. <laughs> and I am also remembering that um, the designer is not a, a high and mighty lofty artist in his or her atelier or studio I remember coming across you on the loading dock of the Aronoff Theater, you were actually painting one of the sets yourself because we were in a time crunch. So it is a a profession that requires um, both the elevation of pre-planning and thought and the very, very, I won't say mundane, but the very workaday aspect of actually helping create the set from time to time.
1: Yeah, I'm not always allowed to do that because most mm-hmm. of the time designers are not allowed to touch their sets, but, uh, or their costumes, but I actually really miss it, you know, because I, I love, uh, making things. I love uh, painting, distressing, uh, c- creating. I love to physically make things. And mm-hmm. I learned uh, from experience, just as I started designing uh, bigger and bigger productions and larger and larger opera houses, I was able to touch my sets and my costumes less and less. Um, because, uh, and, and truthfully so, I mean, rightly so, because there are professionals who do that. So it's all good, but I miss it, you know? So whenever I have a chance to actually put my hands on the set and help the painters do something and you know it actually makes me very happy.
0: We read stories sometimes about composers or authors or painters who get stuck that there is a painting that just refuses to materialize or a sculpture that refuses to release itself from the stone or a chapter that refuses to be started and then quite often there is some sort of small or large revelatory experience. You read this about Mahler and some of, his, some of his symphonies. You read this, of course, about people like Michelangelo or da Vinci, who rarely finished anything. But when you have gotten stuck, let's say, in a process, has there do you recall any one particular time when there was something really quite remarkable that unstuck you, that allowed you to take the next step and complete something?
1: You know, I don't know that I can pull an exact example from my head, but typically what does it is a conversation with a brilliant thinker. You know, Mm -hmm. um, I'm I'm so fortunate to have so many incredible friends um, that really range from neurologists to psychologists to artists, you know, composers, writers. I, I feel tremendously grateful for that. And, um I feel that, you know, when I'm stuck, it can be just a phone conversation with a good friend and not necessarily even on the subject of the matter that I'm stuck with. Uh, I I oftentimes find that trying to press on that particular subject is actually not helpful. So if I'm stuck with a particular project, try to press on that and press on that. That just never really yields results. I find that letting go and getting inspired and uh, just letting the mind roam will eventually um, get me there. And I think through the years, I just learned that trusting my mind is very important Mm
0: -hmm. and
1: uh, stress doesn't lead to any good results ever. And letting Uh, go is the answer and getting inspired is the answer.
0: As often the yoga instructor will say about breathing, you breathe in, you think the word let, you breathe out, you think the word go. Mm. Yeah, (laughs) I haven't heard
1: that one, but that's great. (laughs)
0: It's a great yeah, one. Yeah. Um, I wanted to spin back for a moment because you mentioned your your formative years in Israel. Did you stay there long enough to have to be in the army?
1: You know, I evaded the army i did stay there long enough i was supposed to go to the army but i didn't go to the army um that particular year uh there was an abundance of women uh going into the army um and the thing is that uh, women are not allowed to serve in combat in israel uh, for Hmm. obvious reasons uh, Hmm. of, of kidnapping and potential you know rape and um and so there was actually fewer positions in the army uh, in israel for women than there are for men and uh, in that particular year uh there were too many women uh just happened to be too many women that year and um and uh i just didn't go and instead i went to tel aviv university to study certain costume design for stage
0: so. And, and we, are, we are all the luckier for it. Did your path eventually lead away from Israel to residing in the United States, or where was the next stop on your journey geographically?
1: Yes. So I came to the United States to do my master's degree in design at Tisch School of the Arts at NYU. Oh, um, sure. And I did uh, a double major there. I studied production design for film and set and costume design for stage.
0: And what were your, some of your first impressions of New York? Was it your first time visiting New York when you came to New York to study?
1: Um, yes. Uh, I came first to interview, uh, and then I came back to study when I was accepted to NYU. Um, I uh, was amazed by the constant source of inspiration, and it took me a while to deal with the fact that I will always be missing something. Um, hmm. just because, you know, there was so much going on in New York on any given moment that it's impossible to experience it all. And so it was very overwhelming. Um, and then I just had to get used to it to just say, yep, every day you're going to miss all of these concerts, all of these shows, all of these exhibitions. Yep, that's just going to happen. That's just going to be part of life. Um, but of course, in the beginning, it's quite overwhelming because it's, you know, it's uh, one of the biggest cultural capitals of the world and when you first arrive here you want to try it all but then you know because i was um studying uh for a double major and i also worked for 20 hours a week as a graphic designer at nyu Uh, because I got a full tuition scholarship there and uh, through a graduate assistantship. So my graduate assistantship was for three years. um, I was working at NYU first two years as a graphic designer. My third year I was a draper at the costume shop there. And uh, I just didn't have any time. I essentially lived at 721 Broadway on the third floor for three (laughs) years.
0: wow and um in that environment i know that you know you talk every artist is a little bit different some artists need real quiet in which to work some love to be surrounded you know there's the cliche story of Rossini, you know, sitting up in bed, writing, writing with a whole bunch of people around him. I mean, what's, what's your ideal work environment to actually do the work you want to do the creative work of, of imagining you've talked about, you know, sort of, you know, sitting and staring out the window for the inspiration, but what's the atmosphere that you like the most in which to do your work, the creative in in designing work?
1: You know, I am incredibly easily distracted because I'm interested in everything. I'm interested in literally everything. I'm like a human equivalent of a cat that gets distracted by every noise, every bird, every everything, you know. So for me, uh, the most ideal environment is being locked in a room uninterrupted and complete quiet. Or you know, maybe I'll play some Baroque music uh, quietly, uh, non-vocal, just instrumental, um, mm-hmm. to, just to help kind of have some sort of very quiet soundtrack. But oftentimes I work even without music, Just it's so hard for me to concentrate that I, I just need quiet, quiet room is ideal. And,
0: and do you often get that? Or do you find yourself sometimes in situations where the work has to get done and you don't have that atmosphere?
1: yes oftentimes i don't have that atmosphere of course because a lot of our design work happens on the road you know i'm on the road on average about seven months a year so i'm actually not in my studio for most of the year Uh, a lot of the design work happens in hotel rooms and coffee shops and you know good headphones are key so just have good (laughs) noise cancelling headphones and uh, it's been my savior for many years in any environment
0: Let's go back into the designer's workshop, if we can, because we've talked a little bit about imagining a production, working with the musical text, working with the written text, engaging with your collaborators, particularly composer. If it's a new work, director, always. Um, And there are the initial uh, sketches that you make. But there is an important part of design work that is actually building of a physical model, not only for you and the director and the composer, but also for the company that is going to be investing in the production what's model making like for you do you enjoy doing it is it something that that you uh, were you did you play with legos as a kid <laughs> i mean what was your, what's your what's your model work like
1: so you know i've actually studied set design a long time ago because it was in tel aviv uh when i did my uh, bachelor's degree in set design and back then um i um i did it by hand i i, I built actual set models by hand. Uh-huh. But since then, I transitioned into uh, 3D drafting digitally. I've been doing that since 2010, I think, since 2011, uh-huh. now, almost a decade. And I build models digitally for a couple of reasons. Um, one is that I feel like it's a much more easily editable um, environment uh, because if I spend two hours building the little physical couch for my set model. And then mm-hmm. I put it in the, mo- in the model box and I look at it and say, oh, well, you know, that's the proportion doesn't quite work. And that means that I have to spend two more hours remaking another couch, <laughs> you know? And, and that means that I will be more attached to it because I just spent two hours working on it. So I'm attached to it. If I work in a digital realm, replacing something, deleting something, scaling something is not a problem. And I feel that for a creative process, it's very, very important to be flexible because my model making has nothing to do with storytelling or what people are going to see on stage. So being attached to a physical set model piece, for example, is non-productive in any way. So for me, you know, finding a medium in which I can very easily edit it, I can delete it, I can email it to a director, I can have them have feedback immediately, you know, I don't need to... Wait until I physically put a set model in the box and mail it, and then it all gets crushed on the way. You know, I just find Oh, yes, that,
0: we've all experienced that. Yeah, Absolutely.
1: Yeah, I find that drawing in 3D is just much more friendly and quicker and shareable um, and editable. So I just really like doing that. Yeah.
0: And as you said, it allows you to have a certain amount of ruthlessness in terms of achieving. The right or the, the, the solution for this particular room or that particular atmosphere without, as you say, becoming physically attached to, oh, that cute little chair that I spent three hours building doesn't work. It, well, yeah, it allows I, you to move more quickly, too.
1: Absolutely. And I think it's important to remember that, as I said in the very beginning of our, of our conversation, for, for a stage designer or film designer, our set models and our sketches are not the final result. It's just Mm -hmm. brainstorming, you Mm -hmm. know, and and I feel like a lot of people get really fixated on the set models or like, how does the sketch look? And at the end of the day, if you're able to communicate your ideas effectively to your director, to the opera company and to the scenic shops or the costume shop, that's all that matters, no matter how you do it, as long as you can comprehensively and effectively communicate your ideas because at the end of the day nobody from the audience sees those you know none of them see the set model or the sketches they just experience the show as a whole or they experience the film as a whole and so in my mind whatever gets me there quicker and the most effective way um it wins that method wins
0: you have had uh, an illustrious career, no pun intended. Uh, at still in uh, it, with only a couple of decades of uh, work. So you are still on the uh, the. You're no longer up and coming, but you're not the you're not at that revered state yet where you're reflecting on your past glories. But you certainly have enough experience now, I think, to perhaps offer your own perspective on this question, which is, I'm a young budding designer i have ideas galore i have a pretty steady hand i have i love the theater i love opera what are a couple of pieces of advice you would give me the budding young designer to to help me along my way things that either that you have learned or things to avoid for that matter
1: you know i think the best advice i've ever gotten and it was actually from my dad is to concentrate on the work and pay as little attention as at all possible to the industry machinery that is around the work. Because if the work is good, the recognition and the opportunities will come. I feel like so many people, especially uh I mean, it's understandable, the, you know, people who just come out of school are so preoccupied with who they talk to and how they talk and where, where, where are the parties and, you know, who do they need to call and who do they need to be friends with. And I think networking is very important, but I think at the end of the day, you need to focus on the work because that's what's going to get you there. You know, and um, it's an advice that I got very early on and I live by it. And um, uh, I, I, I think it's the best advice I've received. Um, other than that, I just I would say just um, start a, an image library. I found it to be very useful. Um, I started an image library when I first got to NYU. I think one of our professors suggested it. And um, I've been collecting images in multiple categories just in my computer uh, since 2002 now so it's a pretty big image library at this point and um it's divided by multiple categories from interior design and architecture to colors photographs uh, textures you know um and then anytime i start a project i just scroll through the images that inspired me through the years and it's such a great way to get your head into a project or find this piece that you saw that um you know made you excited um and so we live in such a visual world where we have so many images scroll in front of our minds every day that i think if you have some sort of a system where you can have albums on your phone or however you want to pinterest boards i don't know there's so many different ways to organize it but make your own personal image library that you can refer to Um, i think that's that would be very helpful for a young designer any designer
0: do you see a, a change in pace in the terms of the level of patience or the level of um, willingness to absorb an image, shorten in its duration, In even in the few years of your own career? We talk about, you know, when I was, when I was growing up uh, 100 years ago when dinosaurs still roamed the earth, <laughs> uh, a typical 60-second television commercial had about 10 shots. Um, and now a typical 30-second television commercial has about 50 shots. In other words, uh, the need for visual stimulation has accelerated incredibly. Have you seen something similar happen in your work where the desire or the need on the part of directors or producers has accelerated, or is this something that is you've mercifully avoided, at least in theater? Uh,
1: it's definitely accelerated it definitely Mm -hmm. accelerated you know i uh, i've made it my mission to try and design for as many world premieres as i can because i really love collaborations with living uh creators and um i love telling relevant stories you know and um Mm -hmm. i've seen that in new work that's being produced uh, the pace is much quicker than in classical works uh, there are many more locations the transitions between the locations are much shorter um, and i think that it's done so um, in order to be relevant and in response to our times because our audiences um live that kind of pace
0: mm-hmm. and
1: so i've definitely seen that happen in opera in newly written opera absolutely
0: mm. You have been such a wonderful guest to talk to. We could talk for two or three hours, but I like to end every one of these conversations with a a set of uh, uniform questions. So, and you could, by the way, plead the Fifth Amendment to any one of these. So, (laughs) here goes. Uh, What do you normally have for breakfast?
1: Oh, okay, well, coffee is the m- most important breakfast <laughs> ingredient. Um, um, it, you know, <laughs> I might add some fruits or oatmeal or omelet to this, but with, without coffee, a day cannot begin.
0: Fair enough. How do you normally deal with stress?
1: Um, I think it's important to divide problems into actionable and non-actionable. Um mm-hmm. And I've learned through the years that stress is not productive at all. And I really try to manage it whenever I'm presented with stress, which is all the time, because our professions are extremely stressful just by design. Mm. Um, I try to think, okay, so is this problem actionable? If so, what can I do about it? And then I take all the stress that I'm experiencing and I channel it into actually doing something about it. Um, If the problem is non-actionable, then me stressing about it is not going to help anyone. And so I just try not to stress about it.
0: I think you've already answered this question, but just in case I've missed it, would you say there is a singular most important mentor for you in your professional career?
1: Um. I think I would say that my father is probably the most important mentor for me, uh, continues to be just because he uh, used to work as a set and costume designer and he's also an arts educator and an incredible artist. And uh, um, I always run my ideas um, for all the designs by him and we talk about it and uh, he continues to mentor me to this day. So I've been extremely
0: lucky for that. What are you reading these days?
1: So I've been kind of obsessed with uh, an Israeli writer. You might know him, uh, Yuval Noah Harari. He wrote Hmm. three books uh, which were absolutely transformative uh, for my view of the world. Uh, One, uh, his first book is Sapiens, uh, which is the overview of the history of humanity. Um, The other book, his second book was called uh, Homo Deus, And it's his thoughts about the future. And now I'm reading his third book that's called 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. Hmm. And uh, he is a macro historian, uh, meaning that he uh, views everything that happens uh, in the world from a macro evolutionary uh, point of view, uh, which is really, really fascinating to me because um, I... uh, I found that, you know, we're so focused on the immediate problems of now that we don't have the mental space of seeing the larger picture. And I think Mm -hmm. seeing the larger picture and understanding the causalities of certain things is tremendously important.
0: I know that your life is dominated by visual stimuli, so this may not be something you do very often, but is there a television series or a podcast series that you enjoy?
1: Um, you know, I recently saw unorthodox about oh, uh, yeah. on Netflix Fantastic. maybe a, yeah, 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 and I, I I really enjoyed it, you know i I think it's such a fascinating look, fascinating look um into. Uh, That community, the Hasidic community um, that we know so little about, you know, even as an Israeli, I know very little about because the secular communities in Israel and the religious communities are very separated. And so I really appreciated that very well-crafted look into that community. So that was the most recent TV show that I enjoyed. And as far as podcasts are concerned, um, I really love a podcast by Lex Friedman. It's uh, an artificial intelligence podcast. It's kind of a big picture conversation at MIT um, about the nature of intelligence and artificial intelligence. And I think that this is really the most pressing question that humanity faces right now uh, aside from climate change and nuclear uh, weapons it's the artificial intelligence and I think that it's not talked about nearly enough uh, Mm. and legislation needs to be happening for that now and actually has you know we're already past the point where it had to started to happen and so it's coming it's already here um, and I, you know, just want to learn as much as I can about it. Uh, and I feel that Lex Friedman is extremely intelligent, and he has very interesting guests on his podcast.
0: Do you have a phone app that you find particularly useful? Uh,
1: <laughs> I think mm-hmm. notes and voice memos. Just because, as I said, I, you know, I brainstorm <laughs> all of my designs in my head, sure. and so writing them down or recording the voice is the most helpful. I think.
0: Um, Do you have a favorite musician outside of classical music?
1: so many oh gosh uh so so many well, different kinds a um
0: will, a couple will do that's fine you don't have to pick <laughs> one.
1: so uh you know i love um okay like the composer nino rota that wrote soundtracks for fellini movies i i mm-hmm. love listening to that music uh cesaria vora from the folk realm uh erica badu lauren hill from the soul um i really love electronic music i love so so many different artists uh electronic music, there is an amazing group that's called I Am, Am I, Who Am I? It's from Sweden that I really love. Uh, Samaris and Grimes, um, also electronic artists. Bjork, of course, is the alternative queen. Uh, mm-hmm. and so rich, uh, you know, her Her music is so rich. So, yeah, I mean, and, and then, you know, I really love early music, as I mentioned before. Uh, Monteverdi, Hildegard, Von Bingen, I love. Her music is just tremendous. Ok, uh, gem. So, listen to those a lot.
0: Very wide taste. That's terrific. Uh, <laughs> last but not least, um, you are, are someplace and you meet someone who has never tried opera. Maybe it's an educated theater goer who has just said, "Ah, oh, that noise." Um, what's your What's your elevator speech to get someone to try opera for the first time?
1: You know, I, I always say that, you know, when opera was written, when classical opera was written, it was contemporary to that time. You know, so it's not uh, some sort of museum, archaic uh, art form. Uh, it's stories that, you know, those are stories that were very, very contemporary to the time that they were written, first of all. Um, and it's important to remember, for some reason, people never think about it. Anytime I say that, they're like, oh, wow, yeah, that's true. I guess it's true. <laughs> um, and then, you know, opera is, is the most comprehensive art form, to my mind, and... Um, and uh, i think in operatic performance is the richest most all-encompassing uh, live performance experience an audience can get because it combines music and singing and acting and visuals and special effects mm-hmm. and dance and you know and 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 you know it's this incredible all-encompassing art form, that I think that once you see a good operatic production, you're probably going to be hooked for life because you probably have never seen anything like that before.
0: Thank you, Vita Tsikun, so much for spending time with us today. And uh, I wish you the very best, and we are very excited to welcome you back to Cincinnati in the summer of 2021 for the world premiere of Castor and Patience, reuniting you with the creative team of director Kevin Newberry, and composer Gregory Spears.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thanks for listening. For more information about Cincinnati Opera, please go to cincinnatiopera.org. And please do subscribe to this podcast. For Cincinnati Opera, I'm Evans Mirages.